So if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 11. We'll be starting off in verse 36. And I have a question. How does our story end? Not just the book of Daniel, but how does our story, the story of God, the story of humanity, the great story that God is writing across the cosmos from the beginning of time until now, how does our story end? I ask that because as we examine the last part of the book of Daniel, these last 23 verses, this last part of the last vision that's given to God's beloved and faithful prophet, God seems to want to inform him, to let him in on what is to come, not just in his people's immediate future, but in humanity's ultimate future. So can I teach you a $5 word this morning? Eschatology. Say that word, eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. It's a fancy word for the exploration of endings, conclusions, and culminations. Uh, Lately, I've been rereading with my kids uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings, because I am a nerd and I want my children to be nerds. And as long as they're under my house, I'm going to indoctrinate them into their father's nerdiness. And just this last week, we finished the first book in the trilogy, which is The Fellowship of the Ring, and we rewatched the movie, which is a parenting choice my wife is not fully on board with, since Amira, my youngest, is only four, and, you know, there's orcs and battles and fantasy violence, but, you know, I want to prepare them to watch that new Rings of Power television show together as a family, so, you know, parenting choices. We all make them. And I mentioned that uh, we finished Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship of the Ring is my favorite. I like setup. I like the world building. I like how different characters get sucked in to the adventure. But most people are not weird like me. They don't like beginnings. They like eschatology. They like the epic conclusion. They like the blockbuster last act. After all, it was Return of the King, Peter Jackson's kind of heroic finale that won the best picture at the Oscars years and years ago. And that film, in particular, delights people who enjoy pondering last things, who uh, thrill to see how stories resolve, because I swear this movie has like six different endings All these different kind of plot and character beats. I love this movie. This is not a slander. But it does have like six different endings. All these different story beats, these character beats that wrap up the narrative. And I really think that the last 23 verses of Daniel do something similar. In whirlwind fashion, this heaven-sent vision lays out how God's great story resolves. Now, don't be confused, because last week it felt like we weren't at the end of the story. It felt like we were in the thick of history. And I swear, this will be my last Lord of the Rings reference. 
It felt like we were on the ramparts of the battle of Helm's Deep, not making our desperate last stand at the Black Gate of Mordor. I could have gone Star Wars, but I don't like Star Wars. But an angel, if you were here with us last week, had been revealing to Daniel about this time of just deep turmoil and challenge that would be facing God's people hundreds of years in their future, but thousands of years in our past. And the angelic messenger, he, he foretold the rise of this brutal tyrant, a man by the name of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would seek to systematically stamp out Israel's faith in the one true God. It was to be a persecution on par with the Nazi Holocaust, a a horrific cultural genocide. And to keep the faith, many would lay down their lives. And that section of Scripture, it ends with God's call for his people to suffer faithfully as they await God's redemption. So we ended last week in the thick of it, but then something strange happens in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Mid-discussion of Antiochus IV, it feels like someone punches the fast-forward button on this vision, and suddenly it looks like we're looking at a different horizon, like we're looking past Antiochus to a future ruler for whom Antiochus is just the prototype. God intends, it seems, to unveil not merely the end of that historical season of trial, but how God's people's ultimate season of trial will be brought to its definitive conclusion. So let's see what I'm talking about. Let's read together, starting in verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. What jumps off the page here is this ruler's religious pretensions. He exalts himself, it says, above all other gods. This is not a pious individual. He rejects the the venerated deities of the world's religions. And instead, it says he honors the God of fortresses. That seems to mean that he worships power itself with devastating violence, with cynical manipulations. 
He secures his own ends. And the text states that he's aided, he's supported, he's upheld by some, up to this point, unknown spiritual force. Pure evil, it seems, stands behind his throne as he opposes God's will and God's way at every turn. And then we keep reading. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. That's the land of Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So what do I mean when I say it feels like this vision has started to shift horizons? On first blush, it feels like we're talking about this one tyrannical king who is terrorizing God's people and terrorizing the region. Yet, all of a sudden, it seems that the history no longer starts to match up. Up to this point, it has been super precise, super faithful to what actually happened there in the second century B.C., up to the point that kind of secular historians insist that it must have been written after the fact. But now things start to change. Now things look a little different. It doesn't match the history anymore. There's no evidence, even though Antiochus declared himself to be a god in the flesh, he never rejected the Greek gods. It never has any evidence that he conquered Egypt. And where he will suddenly fall in battle, he doesn't fall between the Mediterranean Sea and Mount Zion. He falls far to the east, repelling an invasion of Persians. It seems that all of a sudden, it does not match how do we explain this deviation? And it only continues as we head into the next chapter. We read in chapter 12, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise 
shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So even if you're not a historian, I think we can start to recognize as we get into chapter 12 that we're in uncharted territory. Surely we would have heard if there was a mass resurrection from the dead. Clearly God is kind of opening the aperture of this vision and revealing, he's exposing to us the grand conclusion that all history is pointing towards. And I want us to get our bearings, but let me add a little bit more data before we do. This is what it says in the next few verses of Daniel. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. He's at the Tigris River receiving this vision. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. That when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Okay, that's a lot. Let's take a deep breath. How do we even begin to comprehend all of this? I won't pretend to have all of the answers. These are complex and difficult passages. And anyone who triumphantly tells you that they've got it all figured out is either deluding themselves (laughs) or lying to you. We see through a mirror dimly. There is much we don't and and maybe much we cannot understand fully. But we can make out the broad strokes here of how our story ends. And like the many endings of Tolkien's Return of the King, the, the various story beats that we go through to get to the grand finale, I do think can be identified. And I just want to try to map those out for us this morning. So how does our story end? This is what we see, the six beats that we can discern from the book of Daniel. I think the first one is this. The first step in this grand finale is the strength of God's holy people will be shattered. We saw that man in linen who was above the river and he raised his hands to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. That's not something we like to hear. But it is in step with what we discovered last week. In days of challenge and persecution, God's people are asked to stand firm and suffer faithfully. 
We have this wrong-headed notion that God will never send us into seasons that are too big for us. That he'll never give us more than we can handle. We say that a lot, but God's word never actually says that. What scripture does assure us is very particular. It says, in our battle with sin, when we are in Christ and God's spirit is at work in us, we are always free to not sin. When it comes to temptation, we will never face more than we can handle because one of two things will happen. God will either grant us the strength to overcome or he will give us a way of escape. When scripture makes that statement, it's specifically talking about the way we resist our own sin and brokenness. But the the Bible never gives a guarantee that you won't face a situation that pushes you beyond your limits. Just listen to the Apostle Paul at the start of 2 Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be aware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Our meager human power can break. This fragile jar of clay will eventually crumble under the pressure. But in that moment, we won't despair, will look for help from heaven, which is actually the next beat in our finale. The strength of God's holy people will be shattered, and in a time of great trouble, God's people will be rescued. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. When we're at our wit's end, when our hope and our strength has failed, our Savior intervenes and breaks the power of evil. By his grace, he cuts short our suffering and delivers us. It says there in Daniel that this will be for time, times, and half a time. That word times is a a unique word because it speaks of a very specified period of time, but it doesn't define what the duration of time is, if that makes any sense. It's a, it's a term that usually is used to describe something like the stages of a disease. There's these de- definitive periods of time that you have to pass through, but you don't know exactly how long each season will last. But we do have this sense that times, times, and half a time in Scripture, that's like three and a half And if seven is the number of completion, it's this implication that this is not a full season of suffering, that God will intervene and cut short this season of trial. 
It will be limited because God is gracious to us. And listen to what even Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In our time of great trouble, God intervenes. He cuts it short and he rescues his people. Daniel references a book here. It's the so-called book of life. It's a metaphor that Moses first uses in Exodus chapter 32. And he imagines God keeping a ledger that contains all of the names of every living person on the planet. And when someone's sin mandates judgment, their name is blotted out of the book. And that leads to their death in this life. That's how Moses conceived of it. So thus point, at this point in Scripture, if you read, my name is written in God's book, it's this testimony that God is going to preserve me right now in this season of trial. He will maintain my earthly existence and I will not die. But here at the end of Daniel, we get the first hint that maybe to be written in God's book means more than just physical preservation. It means the promise of eternal life. So the strength of God's holy people will be shattered. In a time of great trouble, God's people will be rescued. And then the third beat in the end of the story has to do with judgment and rebuke. Somehow a desolator, and I'll explain what I mean by that word, that's a Daniel word, meets his predestined end. We read in verse 45 of chapter 11, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Throughout this book, Daniel has used this word desolation. To make something desolate is to make it uninhabitable, to make it unsuitable for life. And God created this good, this beautiful world, and in countless ways, our human corruption has has disordered God's world. it's, It's polluted God's world. It's vandalized this cosmic temple. You see, the earth was intended to be this sanctuary where the creator God could commune with his beloved creation. But it's devolved into this place of of ugliness and oppression. It's become unsuitable for life. And often this desolation is embodied in in a figure, in a desolator, a person through who great pain and destruction comes. And these are people, as we've read, who stand against God and his justice, his way of doing things. They elevate themselves above heavenly authority and they actively work against God's will and purposes in the world. And the language the New Testament uses for such figures is antichrist. 
They're counterfeit saviors. They're rival messiahs. They're men who, like Jesus, seek to make the world new, but unlike Jesus, they insist on stamping the globe into their own violent image. They're lawless men, men of destruction who make the world desolate. And over the course of history, it seems that there have been many antichrists who've arisen and met their end. They've experienced a taste of God's wrath. Daniel seems to imply that Antiochus IV was one of these figures. And since his day, it feels like there have been many people who have auditioned for that villainous role. Think of Nero in the Roman Empire. You think of Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin. We don't exactly know how history will unfold, but Daniel hints that at the end of God's great story, another such desolator will face judgment and meet his predestined end. And it's a sentiment echoed by Paul. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Let no one deceive you, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So the strength of God's people shatter. In a time of trouble, God's people are rescued. A desolator meets his predestined end. And then what did we hear? We heard something about the appearance of his coming. The next beat in the end of the story is that Jesus himself makes a return appearance as the Son of Man's kingdom, his everlasting kingdom, is established on the earth. It's a climactic part of the story that we heard way back in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel saw, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, to God himself, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I love the simplicity with which our EFCA statement of faith sums up this expectation. We say we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's great story ends with a beautiful reunion. We finally get to see Jesus, our Savior, face to face, and he arrives to ultimately and definitively make all things new. It'll be the final fulfillment of what we so often pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And it's hard to wrap our minds around this, but even Jesus seems to look forward to this moment. 
to the public crowning of the world's true king. And this is what we hear him say in Matthew chapter 24. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. God gathers his elect, which is actually the next beat in our finale. God's people's power is shattered in a time of trouble. We're rescued. A desolator meets his end. Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. And then the last The fifth part of this is God's people are renewed. They're forgiven. They're made holy. It's what we poured over in Daniel chapter 9, the promise of a great jubilee of the 70 weeks that are decreed. It says to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. I'm going to do this special work among my people. And here in the very end, we see God's people arrive at that finish line. And Daniel hears, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God's people will shine like stars. They'll be shining like the angels. The Israelites associated the stars with the angels, those heavenly beings that do God's will and carry out his purposes. And man, they were made a little lower than the angels. But now they radiate God's glory into the world. What do we say? God is making all things new, even us. And this is what Paul was looking forward to when he wrote to the Romans. And he said, for the creation waits with eager longing. For what? For the revealing of the sons of God. For this work of renewal and rebirth and forgiveness that will happen within God's family. For creation was subjected to futility and the hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this leads us to the last part of this grand finale. Death itself is defeated and overturned by resurrection. Justice is established and wrongs are made right. And we hear, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Guys, this is new. I don't think, no, if you realize that, the Jews didn't have this hope in the face of death before this vision. They had a very different conception of the afterlife. 
It was sort of depressing. They, they imagined that everyone kind of slipped into this shadowy existence. They, they went down into the grave, into a, an underworld that they called Sheol. It was in that psalm that Cam read for us at the opening of service. And in Sheol, there was no difference between the righteous and the wicked. They all just kind of existed as a wraith. And in Sheol, there was no longer any interaction with God. When your story ended, when you were blotted out of the book, they thought that was it. You just kind of lingered in this sad, shadowy place. And as you keep reading the Old Testament from the beginning up until this point, you start to get people that are hoping that there's something more. This can't really be the end. You start to get hints that maybe God is doing something. And then we get to this vision in Daniel and we hear that death is not the end of our story. God not only breaks the power of evil, sin, and death, but he overturns and he reverses the rampages of those forces in our lives, in the universe, in reality. And I imagine this was a disorienting picture for the people who first received it, but it is a beautiful one. Death doesn't have the last word. God has the last word, and his last words are grace and life. Now, you might be uncomfortable with all this talk of eschatology. I'll admit it, it's weird. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It's hard to conceive of or, or even really believe deep in our bones. But laying out the end of the story like this, God is reinforcing what is for us a distinctly countercultural truth. And here I'm going to quote uh, a biblical scholar with an unpronounceable name. His name is Ian, uh, and his last name starts with D. It's Degood or something. But he puts this so aptly. He's been one of my dialogue partners as we've been working through Daniel, and he has this summary statement. He says, Evil is intractable and powerful with deep roots and sharp claws, and no amount of education or activism or democratic reform will ever eliminate it. He says the apocalyptic parts of the Bible remind us that we live in a world that cannot simply be fixed. It needs to be recreated. And that is what God's saying. He's not here to make us marginally better, but still leave us in the hell of our own making. He is here to break the power of evil, sin, and death and make all things new. And the grand finale is that our power breaks, but in a day of trouble, we're rescued. Desolators, agents of destruction and injustice will meet their destined end his kingdom will be established on the earth. We will be made holy. We'll be the people that we were created to be. People that reflect the goodness and glory of God into the world. 
and death itself will be overturned and reversed and the world will be healed. I don't know how to grasp that, but it is beautiful and powerful. And God in his grace has given us a glimpse of this future that may be far beyond our time. And it wasn't to fascinate our curiosity. It was to shape our perspective and impact how we live. So as we close, I ask this question, how do we live in light of how this story ends? These are the last verses of Daniel. And I love this. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I love that because right out the gate, we're invited to have a little humility. Things are hard to grasp and we may read them differently, but hold to your convictions with generosity and grace. This figure says to Daniel, he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Again, we're asked to trust God and to be willing to walk that hard road of faithfulness with Christ. He says, don't fear what life or man may do to you. Let the trials, let the difficulties you face purify you and refine you. But he also challenges us. He says, don't just put your head down and try to grind it out. He says, seek to understand. There's many of us who are like, nope, I don't read these parts of the Bible. It's weird. He says, seek to understand God's wisdom revealed in Scripture. Seek to understand Christ's way as revealed by how he lived his life. And then we get to the final verses. And from that time, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that causes, makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. I can't parse those numbers for you, but I can receive their message. Endure, and then endure a little longer. And along the way, find rest in God's love. Find peace in God's promise and hope on account of God's trustworthiness. For our future is secure in him. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. That's our statement of faith. God wins 
in the end. And the road might be tough to get there, but take heart. It's already begun. He's making all things new. It's already begun. He's broken the power of evil, sin, and death on the cross and the empty tomb, and he will come back one day to finish the job. So walk with him in trust. Walk with him in confidence. Walk in his way as you shine like stars, even in difficult times, because this is our destiny. All things will be made new. Amen? Whew. Okay, it's fitting that we end our worship today at the Lord's table. And I'll invite the worship team to come up and join us. I say it's fitting because Jesus gave us this little symbolic meal to remind us where our nourishment comes from, where our strength for the journey comes from. He says, you will forever need me, my body broken for you to give you the strength to go on. And you will always need to remember that it is my grace represented by my shed blood that makes you clean, that restores our relationship. You will always need this grace to persevere. So there's something so immediate about this invitation to the Lord's table. But there's also something ultimate. It says in God's Word, let me quote Jesus here. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he looks forward. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We will not drink it together again until the healing of the world and the establishment of my kingdom on the earth. And then Paul reminds the church, he says, for often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until when? until he comes. So I invite you, as we sing, as we worship, to come to this table and remember it is both strength for today, but it's also bright hope for tomorrow. Amen? Well, let me pray, and then the worship team will lead us. Dear God, it is by grace we have been saved. Through faith, it's not of ourselves. None of us come to this table boasting. But we do come to this table celebrating because you've given us all that we need and our future is safe and secure in your hands. What is in store for us is more beautiful than we can even comprehend. And to this, 
we eat with gratitude and expectation and we say thank you and we love you and Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.